You're listening to Dead Air Podcast, part of SplatterPictures.net. What's up, everybody? Wes, Dead Air Knife here with always... Typical Lydia, I hate feet peaver. <laughs> what you don't know is that just before we went, uh, there's a few ways that you can make Lydia freak the fuck out. I know all of them. I won't divulge them all on the, the air right now because I don't want the absolute worst enemy of your life to be created by this episode of the podcast. But I will say that she's got a problem with feet. <laughs> it's apparent, yes, yes. And we've actually covered this a couple times. Have we? Yeah, you have. <laughs> On today's show, we're going to be doing the 1985 classic Lovecraftian horror, Reanimator. Beforehand, we do have a tweet that we can answer, and I likes it because it's a thinking man's question uh yeah no i actually really like this question tweet coming into us hot what is the most intelligent horror movie you have seen it's a tricky question no and right away cronenberg came to both of our minds cronenberg did come to both of our minds particularly for me videodrome that took two at least viewings for me to kind of let that sink in and I remember buying that movie blind, too. I was like, oh, Cronenberg. I looked at the back. I was like, I don't understand what's going on. I watched the <laughs> Even movie. Even better. Yeah. I watched the movie from start to finish. And I was like, I don't understand what's going on. And I always assume that it just means that the movie is smarter than I am. Somewhat. That or could be late at night and you just weren't prepared for what you're about to see. True. I think the first time I watched Memento, which isn't necessarily horror, but it's a drama and mm. a little bit of a thriller, um, it took me a second viewing, which it normally wouldn't. And I, on the second viewing, I'm like, I don't know why I was so brain dead watching this the first time, but I just wasn't in, I, I wasn't prepared for it. I didn't know I was going in having to think. Um, right. But you, you thought you could just lay back on the couch and chill. Yeah. And then the movie saying, sit up, pay attention. Yeah. I think I was more prepared for, like, talking about thrillers that aren't horror, like The Machinist, a highly intelligent yes. film. I really enjoyed that film a, a lot, but I guess I'd, I'd been prepared from films like Memento to sit up and pay attention when it comes to a smart film. Mm -hmm. But as far as Cronenberg and uh, horror is Dead Ringers. I always find yeah, that, yep, yep. yeah, fantastically intelligent plot. I really, really enjoy that film. Although it's not, like, horror in the way that we would be talking stalkers, slashers, bloody Cronenberg himself splatter. has oftentimes said that people classify his movies as horror but that's not entirely his intention while making them yes now one of the movies that you suggested just before we went was behind the mask the rise of Leslie, Leslie Vernon, Vernon. Uh -huh. that is a fantastic example because it takes the subgenre of the slasher horror a genre that gets ridiculed a lot by mainstream media. Sometimes validated. I'm defensive of it, obviously, because I happen to like it. This takes the slasher movie and has a killer sit there and explain a lot of psychological aspects 
to a slasher movie, not really saying this is a this these are what are happening when you're watching the film because the rise. Oh yeah, it's of, far like, more it's far more intelligent than Scream, where they're explaining the quote unquote rules, which is just so base and laughable. But then you do something like uh, Leslie Vernon does, which actually sits you down textbook style. Yes, and explains all of this in a Psycho Killer 101 oh, point of view. Exactly, and and it almost like feels like you would be getting the exact same lecture if you took a course in university about the philosophy behind horror movies. Yeah, and their cultural impact. But the interesting thing about Behind the Mask is it at no point is talking about these as if they're movies. They are talking. About historical yeah, killers. Histor- historical killers, which is the big difference between a movie like Scream and a movie like Behind the Mask. They accomplish the same thing, yeah. but without saying, this is what's happening in a movie. Yeah. Those are, these are his brethren at this point, and actually exactly. exist, quote-unquote, Exactly, and yeah. they never directly reference what killers he's talking about, but a lot of fans of the film have piece together a lot of different clues about what killers he might be actually referencing yeah. that actually exist. I know a, a big theory around that movie is that his mentor was the killer from Black Christmas. Okay. Which is okay. really interesting. I, know, I don't, I don't want to like go on a huge tangent about that movie. I'm a big fan, obviously. No, but see, that's a, a great example of, a, of an intelligent horror film. Intelligent it probably is horror. one of the most intelligent horror films. So you kind of have a little gamut there of intelligent because of plot and writing and the skill of the filmmaker, like Cronenberg, or just intelligent in that so much thought and care in within the horror genre was put into a story like the Leslie Vernon story. There's a lot more intelligent film outside of the horror genre that are really close, like when we were first talking and I was bringing up some thrillers and stuff like that, so that expanding that a little bit more. Seven comes to mind. Yeah, Seven's a really good example and something that I almost want to do on the show, even though it's not horror proper. I'd be fine with doing Seven. Yeah, it has a lot of horror elements and it's another. And I haven't seen it since I was a kid. Mm-hmm. I wish I had more time to rack my brain about intelligent horror films because I probably got a list of like ten well, the, the problem is, is they're asking us about intelligent horror films when we're not intelligent people. So I'm just like, I don't know. <laughs> that or it takes a real thinking, which some people don't do. And even I tend to not do with every single film I watch. There's a lot of films I watch, like Hayride, we were talking about earlier today. Mm-hmm. I didn't watch that with a fucking Wikipedia open and a fucking reference book at the ready to look up anything <laughs> important that came up in that. It's fucking Hayride. So I wasn't, you know, I'm not looking for any intelligence out of that. Right. But we did watch for a previous episode sick nurses and yes. that's a highly intelligent horror film but mm-hmm. on first viewing you're just enjoying it you're going along for the ride and there's a lot of blood and cute nurses or whatever did i mention that they're cute they're super they're super duper cute. cute and you go along for the ride on that but it's not until maybe later you're thinking about it or if it's one of those days where your brain is actually firing on all six cylinders that you're realizing how rich it really is and how thinky and heady that this film really is. Or maybe it's a subsequent viewing where you start really getting into it because all the glamour has worn off, right? Mm-hmm. Aside from other housekeeping, I did want to say hello to Jeff Campbell, who is a listener that has sent us some mail uh, expanding on some of the films that we've watched previously. And he's actually made some suggestions, which are kind of working into some of the older films that we wanted to plug into the show yeah. at a later date. So there'll be some uh, fan suggestions, other fan suggestions from other fans as well. But uh, yeah, Jeff there... brought up two films that probably won't make it in. Yeah, um, actually, 
I'm pretty excited about the suggestions. We won't spoil them just yet. We'll get to it. Uh, I've gotten some other requests as well. So we have more fan request stuff coming up. And if you guys ever want to hear us talk about a movie that you particularly love, please, by all means, don't be shy. We'll take everything under consideration. For me, there's never a no, unless we've done it already. And as long as everybody else is doing it. Well, yeah. So you can hit us up on Twitter. You can hit us up on our Facebook pages. Do not be shy. Any comments or questions about horror or what movies you want us to do or any questions about the movies that we're currently doing. We try to give you guys a little bit of an advancement. You can leave comments on the SoundCloud and that's kind of handy if you have something specific to say about a specific point you can leave a comment right on that point in the SoundCloud. Mm-hmm. And if you're super crafty ninja style, you can find us on Tumblr, Instagram, Twitter, all that we're stuff. We're all over the place. Yep. All over the place. But for today, we're going to be doing a biggie. It's a biggie, in my opinion. I guess it's bigger than I even anticipated. Yeah, yeah, it's far more important and far more popular a film than I even thought. But that's not necessarily a bad thing. No, oh, no, not at all. Not at all. Just when it crossed my mind to do it, I was just like... Yeah, I don't know. I like this movie. It's gory. I liked it. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It's got some of my favorite little things in it. But then I started thinking back to like how many people dress up as Dr. Hill at like fan conventions and stuff. And it's just like, wow, yeah. People really, really do hold this in high esteem. They do hold it in high high esteem. When this movie broke, it broke at Cannes Film Festival back in the day, 1985. How old were you? Uh, No comment. (laughs) Go on. And it hit right away. And through word of mouth almost alone, because the advertisement campaigns were stifled by the fact that this movie was released without a rating. The the people who made the film felt no reason to take it to the film board, probably because they knew exactly what was going to happen. They were going to have to compromise their vision and cut a bunch of stuff. And this is prevalent in a lot of horror movies. Thankfully, we live in a world now where a lot of heavily edited horror films from back in the day are getting re-released on DVD and Blu-ray fully intact. Sometimes they can't be released fully intact because the footage just isn't there anymore. Uh, Obviously, a series that's been a huge victim of this that's near and dear to my heart is Friday the 13th. Some of those scenes, you get photos, you get some really grainy footage of original kills, how they were. But, I mean, in terms of that really ever getting spliced back into the movie, probably not. But there are movies that have been restored. Reanimator was released as intended from day one. And people were aligned around the block to see this film. And not only did fans like this, critics liked it, too. Oh, I can believe it. It's a wonderfully artistically executed film. Exactly. But it also does a thing that critics love in horror. They love when they're allowed to like it because it's silly. (laughs) That's the big thing. Either a horror film will be praised by its boldness or its craftsmanship yet sterility. If it's not too gory, uh, critics will think that they can like it. Or, a la a movie like Scream, if it looks at the camera and says, it's dumb, right? (laughs) They love that shit. This movie doesn't do that. It It doesn't wink at the camera. It's... Humor is brought about through the intrinsic absurdity to the situations, and the score helps a lot, too. Yeah, the score helps more than I even remembered. Like, I Mm -hmm. watched this years ago and only paid half attention to it because it was on in the background or something. 
and I watched it a couple months ago and enjoyed it that's for sure enjoyed the the gore and the slapstick which I don't normally like comedy but it does sort of flirt with that edge of comedy that I do like and doesn't cross over into National Lampoon's territory oh thank yeah god or else I wouldn't enjoy it. But yeah. For, for as silly as some people might think that this movie is, I actually think it shows a lot of restraint oh, it does. In, a, in a lot of scenes that people think are outrageous. Now, maybe it's just time that has mellowed everything out and you go into this movie expecting certain scenes to happen and they do happen. And perhaps you remember them more outrageous than they are or they're explained to you that they're going to be more outrageous than they are when you think about the situations that are happening you're like wow this is really fucked up but if you just allow yourself to watch the scenes they're just enjoyable they make you laugh or they're like oh my god i can't they believe are. it and it doesn't cross over into that absurd cartoon level of insanity like say dead alive does where i remember yeah. it being less insane than it actually is and every time i watch it i'm reminded of how fucking balls out insane it is and how just goony and weird right um, like how gets. i always think that that priest scene in dead alive is 30 seconds 45 seconds <laughs> not like minutes and minutes of this priest fighting these zombies yeah how long it is or even the end scene is like three times as long feeling every time I watch it. Not that that's unenjoyable, but it's even more crazy yeah, than a, I remember. Yeah, yeah you're not Always. saying that it's long in a bad way. You're just like, wow. Yeah. Even the rat monkey is more like ludicrous every single time I see him. His eyes seem even bigger every time. He squishes even squishier every time. There's even more green goo coming out of him and he hisses and <laughs> he's just more animated almost every time than I even remember where reanimator is a totally opposite where you almost remember it being more Three Stooges level of comedy or you almost remember it being more uh, body fluid insanity like Dead Alive, but it's not. And it, there is a lot of restraint which is good because it keeps it in that realm of black, putting the black in black comedy. And it does stay extremely macabre and very, very dark, even at its most funniest bits. Yeah, absolutely. This story is an adaptation. It's right in the title. They don't bury it at all. H.P. Yeah. Lovecraft's Reanimator. This is based off of a serial that was out in 1921, uh, Herbert West's The Reanimator, written by H.P. Lovecraft himself. An amazing story, too. I really enjoy this one. I do enjoy some Lovecraft, definitely. Um, as far as Lovecraft, I always enjoy the aspect of obsession, which is a recurring theme, aside from the whole mythos theme that people hinge on as a recurring theme. but. His themes of obsession, and this is one that really, really drives it home, and I think that's the linchpin of the film as well, is that Herbert West's obsession with his reanimating of yes. corpses is the most watchable portion and yes. the most interesting aspect of the original story. There are deviations, of course, like any adaptation. Lovecraft's notoriously impossible to adapt for the screen, not only because of the creatures and such that would be in other mythos branded stories but this is probably like the easiest one of the easiest to adapt for the screen and it's sort of curious to me in a way not only like so they contemporized it yeah it's modernized to a certain extent uh that's that's fine but there are some things that would have translated just fine to the screen that were left out or just wasn't told in that in that same sort of way that's kind of curious to me but there are enough parallels that it's pleasing to somebody who is a bit of a diehard when it comes to you know, translating the written word for the screen. 
Um, so there are interesting parallels and there's lots of things that are doubly interesting that are left out. So I don't know. I haven't watched the sequel. I don't know why, but I never have. So mm-hmm. I'm curious to see that when they're spending time in uh, a war-torn place with mm-hmm. access to more dead bodies, if it parallels the second half of the story more closely. This does parallel it in that he's experimenting on animals, which we see with our favorite cat scene. Yes. Which we'll talk a little more about in a second. Um, and that he progresses to somebody who's been dead only X amount of hours, then someone who's only been dead maybe an hour, someone who's only been dead a few minutes, someone who's just died in front of him, you know, and the effects of the serum start to become more and more pronounced until finally he can inject somebody who he's basically just uh, decapitated moments ago. Now, you told me something interesting about the book that I didn't know before. There's a Canadian connection to this. Darn tootin'. <laughs> At the very, very end, in the fifth and sixth segments, there's six segments to the story, mm-hmm. uh, there is a, oh, what is his last name? Captain Lee, I believe. Um, West and the narrator, who is unnamed in the story and who would be Dan Kane in the film. So West and, the, and, the, West and his assistant are conscripted and they end up in the Canadian Armed Forces. So they come to Ottawa, which is really cool. Right in our own backyard, Herbert West himself. Yep. I had no idea. Came with his serums and crazy ideas all the way up from Boston, I suppose, at the time, to Ottawa. Think about that. Herbert West, the reanimator, here in Ottawa. Yep, with all those crazy ideas and serums right here on the hill. Yep. I love it. And then he goes to fight alongside our armed forces, in Flanders, no less. Hell yeah. I know. Fucking Canadians representing in Lovecraftian horror. One of the guys in the army at the time, in the fictional Lovecraft Army of Canada, (laughs) had studied under Herbert West as well, so shared some of his crazy ideas about reanimating corpses. I like this version of the Canadian army. Me too. So they go to Flanders, of course, because that's probably the most important battle ever. And the whole reason for Herbert West joining the army wasn't due to any sort of patriotism or trying to save North American... Doesn't seem like his style. Not at all. He just wanted access to fresh corpses. And no better place than on a battlefield. Exactly. As a medic, yeah. He's going to get fresh corpses minute by minute. So he ends up over there, and the nice Canadian gentleman that had helped get him into the army and into that position in Flanders ends up dying all of a sudden, decapitated quite quickly. And he ends up being one of the horde at the end that come back and seek their revenge on Herbert West for dragging them from the edge of death as it was and forcing them to live this undead life. That's what I'm warning you. It's like, yeah, us Canadians are known to be pretty polite, accommodating. Sure, we'll help you get to the army. Sure, you know, we'll we'll help you with your mad research. Oh, but then you fucked with us. Now we're mad. Yeah, you dragged us back from the edge of death. I was going to have a nice nap in the cozy ground. But no, now I got to walk around in this half undead form with all my zombie minion friends that you created, you jerk. Yeah, you done He's still in up. his uh, Canadian Armed Forces outfit, too, at the end of the written story. That's so cool. It uh-huh. makes me think that it should be more celebrated here. Oh, that we should have like a H.P. Lovecraft Day and some sort of like Herbert West memorial up on the hill? Well, look, you, like, you're like you joking, but... No, I'm not joking. Do I look like I'm joking? Well, no, but... <laughs> oh, now you look kind of bad. <laughs> um, but given how much 
we grasp for CanCon. Yeah. I, I just think that it would be really cool that... I think it's they just don't know about it, I think. I think that people would be more into Lovecraft more than they are. Somewhat. I don't know. We have a professor, one of my friends, Sean Moreland, that teaches a lot on H.P. Uh, Lovecraft and Edgar Allan Poe, both of, you know, Lovecraft and his hero, right? Yes. Um, he would be the guy that would know exactly all of that. And there is even a character with a similar name. It's uh, Moreland something, something, something in the story. So Sean has double ties to this in a way, not only being from Ottawa, Canadian, a huge Lovecraft scholar at that. His last name is even within the story. So he's a guy that would know, and he's a guy whose brain I should pick about having a Herbert West Memorial erected somewhere on our constitutional grounds. We should do an episode with him about Lovecraftian horror because I just don't know enough about it. A bonus. Yeah. File it. Um, let me ask you this. What do you think, because we're just talking about, like, a, a fictional Lovecraftian day. The guy never got his due when he was alive. And almost like nobody gave a shit about his works. Then he dies. And, okay, sure, he gets some notoriety. But he gets, like, stuffed toys and games and books and action figures like collectibles, bric-a-brac. He 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 wrote these stories. Do you, if he goes into a store and sees like a Cthulhu plushie, little green like cute little squid octopus baby, and it's like it's Cthulhu, the the old one himself. Do you think? Do you think he'd be like, I'm so touched that something that I made with my brain is a cute little toy, or do you think he'd be like? Where's my fucking check? Neither. Neither. And personally, this is my personal opinion, that neither. He would just be like, that's not what I thought at all. He'd be appalled. He'd be mortified. He'd probably never write a fucking word again because he'd be like, no, you guys do not understand a thing that I'm trying to say or do. This is disturbing and insulting, deeply insulting. But that's my point of view, and I don't know that much. So you'd have to ask somebody like Sean Moreland. You could even ask uh, Chris from Beinhorger Cast, who's a huge Lovecraft fan, and he probably has a way more interesting opinion on what H.P. Lovecraft himself would think of people hugging their little Cthulhu plushies at night. Well, you know what? I'm, I'm going to ask him. Back to the movie. The plot of this film... <laughs> We've talked kind of a lot about it, but yeah, it does it does parallel a little bit with what I've had to say about the written story. We're introduced to Herbert West in a very fantastic fashion. The movie kicks you right in the balls and lets you know what you're in for when you see He's him right in the eyeballs. <laughs> 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 that was funnier than it had any right to be. I know. We see him standing over a doctor. He has reanimated them through the use of his serum that he has developed. Now, we're not entirely certain how he's developed this serum. All we know is that it is in the... My brain is like, I know, glow sticks, man. Glow sticks. Well, that's, <laughs> that's how, how they did it. the effect for the movie. It was glow sticks. But in, I was going to say in real life, no, in the movie, <laughs> <laughs> what it is, is a, a secret formula that he has learned to bring the brain back after brain death has occurred. Do they mention it at all, where it's come from no. at all? Because I I, did, I missed entirely if they had, and I don't remember them mentioning it all in the book. It has something to do with some sort of lizard. They don't discuss it. And cells. It's like 
you know, it's not like quite stem cells, but by the end he's mastered the serum. And that's sort of where we meet him now. He's almost, he's mastered this serum, right? True, but he's still in the experimental process of dosage, time of death. There is still a lot of procedural stuff that needs to happen before he's nailed it. Yes. Now, we're immediately brought from that scene to, and, and this was him in uh, Switzerland, right? Yes. And we're brought to the United States, where we're introduced to God Kane. Dan Kane. We're introduced to yeah. Dan Kane. One of his colleagues at his new home, the Miskatonic University, I suppose. Yeah. Medical school. Fictional medical school. Fictional medical school. Dan Kane has a lovely fiance, Megan, who just so happens to be the daughter of the dean. Mm-hmm. And they are in that blissful part in their lives where they're just about to get married and he's in medical school and they're all working towards their bright future together. And in comes Herbert West. Thank God to save them from a horrible, bland life of mediocrity. Three cheers for Herbert West. Herbert West, played expertly by uh, Jeffrey Combs. If you want a quick aside, if you're interested in the book, which I keep bringing up, which I'm going to stop because it's nothing to do with the movie. No, it has nothing to do with the movie, but it's important because I bet you there's people listening to this podcast that don't know the movie, even though that's hard to believe. Mm -hmm. But there's probably even more people that don't know jack shit about the book that it's based on. Yeah, they should be reading Lovecraft's short stories. They should be reading his very few longer works. They should just read it all. I think it's important, and I think that you can keep bringing it up as much as you fucking want. Okay, so if you're super fucking lazy and you don't read, you can go onto YouTube and listen to Jeffrey Combs read the story to you. How fucking cool is that? Thank you, the year 2015, for having such wild technology that we can be lazy assholes and not even crack a book. It's great. I love it. I loved it. Actually, I listened to it this morning, and it's brilliant because his voice lends itself to the story very well. And I'm sure it's a story that he steeped himself in because from the very moment that we meet Herbert West, the reanimator, on that doorstep in the film, he just grabs you. He's already got you from the eyeball exploding scene, but when he shows up on that doorstep, you know that you're dealing with a very fucking messed up individual. Very cold, messed up individual. Yes. Jeffrey Coombs plays every scene that he's in like it's the last scene he's ever going to perform in ever. And I'm not saying that he's chewing the scenery, acting over the top as hell, but I'm saying that he is winning his scenes. Now, He's dialed right into this character. It, 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 and, and you can't even imagine anyone else playing this character. His delivery, his voice, his look, just that frustration, the intensity, and then coupled with arrogance is just absolutely brilliant to watch. And there's a lot of strong actors in this movie, and there's a lot of people doing a lot of interesting things. But when that guy is on screen, he's the only one you see. And it doesn't seem like he's consciously trying to steal the show. It just, he is the best character. Yeah, such a blend of an untoward individual, not somebody that you meet every day. And you finally get to spend a whole lot of time with somebody that is all reptilian brain all the time, all passion all the time. And it's it's captivating. It's plainly captivating. Played by somebody who's dialed right in and playing a captivating character with an amazing amount of skill. Mm. It's like what you're saying, the, the passion and the obsession, mm-hmm. that driving force of his personality. I was, while we were watching it, I was saying he's like 
the 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 lean mean stripped down version of Dr. Frankenstein that has like completely abandoned all other aspects of humanity except for his research. His it's life's a, work. His life's work is the absolute most important thing to him and how he and that permeates into every aspect of his life up to and including where he lives, who he chooses as associates and how he talks to people. Yeah. The, the first time he meets his professor that's going to be te- supposedly teaching him... Yeah, Dr. Hill. Dr. Hill, he dresses him down in front of the dean and in front of one of the students. And then in their first class, he admonishes him. Yeah, for basically. And after getting almost put in his place by the teacher, he tears him a whole new one in front of the rest of the class as well. Exactly. All it's- To the tune where Hill says, I'm going to enjoy failing you. Which is a pretty heavy-duty thing to say on your first day in class. Yeah. And you love it. It's not like... I'm one of those guys that watches scenes sometimes where characters are arguing with each other or one character is particularly irascible. Mm-hmm. And I get kind of uncomfortable because I'm like, ah, social situations and oh, I could never do that and blah, blah, blah. But it's just... I love it so much. And honestly, that scene where West is watching Hill perform a a brain extraction, basically, Mm -hmm. in class, and he's breaking the pencils. Just, he's so annoyed about the fact that Dr. Hill is incorrectly teaching this class. And he even has that line. It's one of my favorite lines of the movie. It's like, these people are here to learn, and you're closing their minds off before they even have a chance. I love that line doubly because they got somebody with an open brain pan. (laughs) 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 One open mind, stage left. (laughs) So, and and in almost like a fucking sitcomist type scenario, West ends up moving in, like moving in with uh, with Kane and Megan, and. He's just like this dour, creepy... You know, they would have avoided all that if they didn't have a basement because he is almost sexually charged when he asks if they have a basement and then they go down and see it. And he's just like, oh, yeah. Because it's going to be his laboratory. perfect. You know, oh, yeah. And that is very similar to the book. And that's one thing that they really do very well. I keep saying book when it's a story, but you know what I mean. I I know what you're saying. Um, One thing that they do extremely well with this better than most film portrayals of fiction and better than most portrayals of Lovecraft is they really capture that passion. They really capture that, like to me, wildly attractive obsession that West has. And that's something that carries through the story and something that carries through the film. They really, really capture that when he goes down in the basement. It's a good example of his passion. It's almost like the whole world melts away because he's in a basement that's going to be a perfect lab. That's something that like leads through the whole film. His passion just outweighs all human contact, all human concern, everything. And there is something attractive about seeing somebody like that because you can so respect somebody that knows exactly what they want, exactly what's important to them. And a little part of your heart thinks that maybe I could reach them, but you never can. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's that push-pull, that unattainable, yeah. Yeah. Plus, I think you might like the idea of a super brilliant, passionate, creepy guy that really has no time for you. <laughs> like my twin. 
Nah, Dan Kane's way more interesting by the end of the film, but we'll get to that. Oh, we'll definitely get to I that. I want to kind of speed up a few minutes in from when we meet West and he meets his favorite basement of all time. Sure. And he spent a bit of time in class and he returns home and... It just so happens that he's found the dead cat, or quote-unquote found, because we don't know exactly what happened there. They never go back to it, oh, but no. he seems to have this story about the cat falling, like garbage falling on the cat, and its head getting caught in a bottle, and it suffocated. Yeah, which is a flimsy story at best. Yeah, it's never substantiated at all. And I love his, I love his, his like, I was busy, I was pushing bodies around, what was I supposed to leave on the note? Cat dead, details later. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a, a, another amazing line. There's a lot of really, really good lines, and that's another one of my favorites in there. <laughs> Cat dead details later. It's, it's great. Um, he, so the girlfriend discovers her own cat. In his in refrigerator. Fridge, which I think is hilarious. Why would she go into his room and open the fridge? She'd been looking for the cat, looking for the cat. Maybe she got hungry. She'd been spending so much time looking for the cat. Mm. I don't know. <laughs> but I'm so glad that she did. Yeah. Because there it is. Uh, this leads into one of the most famous scenes from the movie, or at least one that people thoroughly enjoy. I cannot stop laughing. Oh, yeah. You this... laugh like crazy. You laugh like I normally laugh when it comes to something horrible. Well, <laughs> it combines two of my favorite things, which is fucked up practical effects and physical comedy. Ah, uh, I thought it was going to be blood and cats. no. But I will say that uh, in Satan's Little Helper, when the cat gets mushed into the wall and he writes "boo," yeah, I did. I did laugh pretty hard. Yes, too. you did. And I was, I was worried that that would shock you. And this is one of those things where animal lovers beware. There is going to be not only a little bit of animal abuse and maybe something even worse than smushing a kitten against the wall and writing "boo" with its blood. Actually, it's ten times worse than it, that, I think. It's ten times yeah. worse. This is the second film I watched. I watched um, a little bit of uh, Let the Right One In the other day, and mm-hmm. I'd forgotten all about the cat attack scene. Yeah. And that's hilarious, actually. It's, and that's, it's pretty I over I think the top. people who are afraid that cats might attack them are afraid of that happening. And this is another good example of that, because this cat attacks Dan Kane. Or no, it's, it's attacking Herbert West. And it's funny, because... Sorry. So this scene is fucking amazing. It's hilarious. Because Dan goes down into the basement... Because he starts hearing some noises. Herbert's freaking out. Like, all of a sudden, Herbert comes into the frame, just like, brah! And, <laughs> and there's, like, the cat has been, that that was dead in the fridge, is now cl- uh, clutched it's onto... It's spread eagle on his back, <laughs> with all claws dug in as deep as it can go. The, the effect is clearly done with, like, a stuffed cat, and Herbert uh, West is making it move by his thrashing about trying to tug it off trying to tug it off and he basically uh, Dan needs to get a, a bat and knock the cat off and then it's the two of them it's like it's as good as possessed hand Bruce Campbell yeah but the fucking crazy thing about this movie is it's all done with lighting and sound because you, you see the cat on his back, then you don't see it. You're no. hearing noises, you're yeah. seeing the lights swing around, and they're just looking all over the place for it. This cat jumps into frame, and then, like he's throwing the winning pitch at the World Series, it just gets belted against the wall. Well, how would you stop a cat that's enraged like that? It's a maniac cat. 
It's a feral maniac cat. And it's funny that I do find it so funny because I'm an animal lover. And oh, I yes, am, you are. And I am usually... I worry sometimes when it comes to these things that you're going to be like, I don't know. I, I Sometimes I can get really overly... But he fastball them. pitches that cat into the wall as hard as he fucking can. Oh he kills the dead cat dead Yeah, all over the, again. The, the undead cat is, is dead again. That will kill anything. Oh, my God. So... It's probably like a 95 mile per hour fastball. Oh my god! At that like point, a rookie of the year not a cat here. anymore. Anyways, <laughs> you can hear its skull crack. Oh my god! Okay, so so, so the cat is super dead now, and it's it, even in pieces. It, it, yeah, it's, it's kind of broken in half. Then comes more this, animal torture. More and oh yeah, then comes a scene where West is now going to try to convince Kane that he needs to work with him. He needs an assistant, basically. He needs Dan to help him out with his research. He can't do it alone anymore. His research has gotten to the point where he knows that he's going to be needing to lug around bodies. He's going to need to perform research while somebody else records it. He just needs another pair of hands. And the best way to do that is to prove to Dan that this serum works. That is why he resurrected the cat in the first place. You got a sense from Wes that he already knew that the formula would work. He just needed Dan to prove it. And Dan is playing that part of Vox Populi where he's saying, no, the cat must have just been unconscious. You must have drugged it. It wasn't dead. So he's saying these things that other people, the doubters, would be saying. So he acts really, really well as an everyman so that somebody like Wes could prove his theories against. Yes. So now he resurrects the cat a second time to prove that the formula does work. And Dan knows it's dead because he killed it. Oh, absolutely. And this cat is as dead as a cat is going to be. Like, man, is this cat dead. Oh, it's mangled and it's dead and it's got a broken spine. It's blood everywhere. It's quite gory. Yeah. It's a little kitty now. It's a little kitty. No animals were harmed in the making of this movie. They tell you that right in the credits. Right when the cat is resurrected and Dan sees the formula work for himself, like right on cue... Megan, which she has a habit of doing, is just, I'm here. You didn't see me come downstairs or anything. I'm just in the shot and I'm freaking out. Herbert West is obviously annoyed by her presence because he knows that what Megan ultimately is, is in his way when it comes to wanting to complete his research because that is Dan's tie to a normal life and his distraction. This this beautiful young fiance of his who is not gonna understand. Because Herbert West, while probably doesn't think very highly of anyone, honestly, he he does have a few passing compliments for Dan, which seems like a little bit of lip service to get what he wants, but he's just like you're bright and Yeah, you're Dan dedicated. seems to be a pretty driven doctor. He really right. is. And, and 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 he doesn't seem like an imbecile. Now he like West thinks Megan is an idiot. Yeah. And cannot stand her. Yeah, because she's in the way. You know what? If she wasn't in the way, he wouldn't even notice her. Exactly. She would have just been a nothing woman that, you know, he was introduced to. But of course, she walks in at this moment when he's resurrected her cat a second time now. And the cat is mangled as hell. And her boyfriend is is standing there alongside this, letting it happen. Mm -hmm. And she freaks out in a scene akin to your mother ate my dog in dead alive she loses her shit <laughs> she loses her and rightfully shit. so understandably this is her cat her beloved cat and oh my god look at it what have you guys done to the cat yeah. well now dan a bit of that part of dan's mind that is the doctor that is the scientist is awakened and the potential of what this formula can do 
mm-hmm. how it could change humanity, what it means scientifically, mm-hmm. becomes so important to him that now he is trying to convince Megan that we have we have to do this. Look at what we've accomplished here. We could beat death. Yeah. And while I wouldn't say it's the beginning of Dan's eventual th- slide, yeah, into slide into westishness. Westishness, <laughs> like if we, if that's a thing, like I'm he, he like it's not his slide into thinking that or thinking the same way that West does and being as obsessive. But he's definitely interested now. At this point, he does slide into the role of the narrator in the original fiction story because that person doesn't have any of the things that make Dan Kane Dan Kane in this film as far as like a girlfriend and things like that and doubting and an argumentative attitude. He doesn't butt up against West theories at first at all. The narrator is totally sold. The narrator is a devout assistant and the narrator in the story is a little fearful of West. There's no way that the narrator necessarily argues with West Mm -hmm. or tries to stop West at all or doesn't understand him. He's behind him 100%. So this is sort of where uh, Dan Kane starts to really parallel the narrator that he is mirroring, right? Mm -hmm. Because he does give in and begin to want to help him out. Yeah, and so this starts a series of events that there is no coming back from. They, very caperish-like, break into the morgue. They are trying to get a reaction, any reaction. They're not necessarily trying to bring a body back to full consciousness and say, hey, it worked. West is just trying to prove that his formula works on humans. Mm-hmm. At this point, and he's only had one human experimentation. And the first time, it was completely disastrous. Yeah. It's all about the dosage and the time of death. That is what he is realizing. Something the, can't be dead too long. The fresher the body, the absolute better it's going to be. They try to resurrect a body that's only been dead for a few hours. Well, it goes poorly. That's the thing about the undead in this movie. First, they're brought back to life through scientific means. Mm-hmm. Second, they're crazy. Like they're not even like it's 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 it's. Well, you ever seen somebody wake up from um, having general anesthetic? Kind of. You ever see somebody who's had all their wisdom teeth out and they wake up and they're like totally spaced out and don't know what where they are? What yeah, but saying? that's kind of like mellowy and quiet and they're delusional. These people are screaming and flipping tables and murderous. Yeah, that's not too, too much different when you've suffered cell death, right? They've had a lot of, they've had brain death. Because if you're going to combine the theory of Dr. Hill that the brain begins to die within 7 to 12 minutes, uh, they definitely have lost a lot of tissue. And they're not firing on all cylinders. And they probably only have these little animalistic centers left. Mm -hmm. So people can be pretty unpredictable when they're not in charge of all their faculties. So I can see these half-dead brained people being suddenly resurrected, acting a little bit outlandish and angry as well, right? While this is going on, Megan's father, the dean, is heading to the morgue knowing that Dan is there. The dean is very gets very sour on Dan rather quickly, and it makes no fucking sense. It's the 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 first after the cat incident. The one of the next scenes you see Dan in, he's getting dressed down in the dean's office, and the threat of 
his uh, tuition being taken away from him. It doesn't make any fucking sense until you find out that this movie had a much longer runtime. Yeah, which is a neat thing, and I need to watch a documentary, actually. Yeah, the documentary that I have on the DVD explained that this movie's runtime used to be 135 minutes, give or take. And in that, Dr. Hill was shown to have psychic powers, basically. Mm -hmm. There's a dinner scene that we see a snippet of in the actual movie, made it to the final cut, that there was a whole bunch of extra scenes that implied that Dr. Hill could hypnotize the Dean and hypnotize him against Dan. That doesn't happen in the movie at all. So it's kind of like the Dean is just angry at Dan and then storms off to the hospital once he finds out that he's there, which I you don't really notice because ultimately you're too distracted by the fact that there is a zombie in the morgue going ape shit. The Dean shows up to the morgue, gets the door knocked over top of him like it's a fucking Looney Tunes cartoon, and then gets killed. In the, after West and Dan are having their exchange about what went wrong, West is already, like, mid-conversation. He's like, help me with this body, man. It's a freshly dead body. Yeah, and and Dan's like, "But, but we can bring him back. It's like every moment we're talking, we're losing valuable data. It's all he cares about. He, Dan... Oh, sorry, Dr. This is the Dean. They've just had a ruckus. There's a dead body on the floor, a freshly resurrected zombie that they've had to resurrect and kill immediately because it was rampaging. And no doubt someone's going to be down here any minute to see what the hell is going on. Yeah. But yeah, all West cares about is help me with this dead body. We need to resurrect it. That is an admirable amount of obsession. It's also exactly where Dan Kane's character says, Yes, you're right, and grabs the feet and helps him. But don't you think that it came from a place more of, oh shit, my fiance's father just died, we can bring him back? Is it more about that? (laughs) I'm sorry, that just does not know. That doesn't know. That's what occurred to me when that scene happened. It was like he, he basically just doesn't want this guy to be dead anymore because it's his fiance's I don't think so because he's seen what they look like when they come back. And I think that it's quite the opposite because if there, if all these people are coming back exactly like they had before, not in this zombie or almost pet cemetery style way that they're coming back, yeah, That's then, like a more manic- then he would be like, well, yeah, then she'll never know her father was dead and everything will go back to exactly right, and I can just crawl back into bed with her where I want to be. But no, the way that they come back, it's got to be the exact dead opposite. Because they come back nothing like they were before. And she's going to know right away what they've done. And she's going to hate the fuck out of him. But this was the newest body. The freshest body that they would have ever tried this on. So maybe in the back of his mind, he would have thought that maybe this just might work and I'll be fine. In a cartoon, yes. In the world that they've created where it's quite medically accurate. And Dan is a really intelligent doctor. No, I'm sorry. I don't believe it. But then who am I? Maybe someone else who thinks about things like family and human connectivity would share your sentiment. I can see why you like Herbert West so much. Thanks. Well, it goes terrible. The Dean is now just crazy. It goes beyond terrible. (laughs) Although, I have to say, of all the zombies, he seems to have vestiges of understanding left in him, but it still was not 
They still wasted too much time. He was dead too long. He's very similar to what you would envision as a zombie, though, which is cool. Um, Herbert West Reanimator was one of the first zombie stories with reanimated corpses. It's also a parody, apparently, um, of Frankenstein. So it's got a lot of, like, cool horror genre history in Mm -hmm. the story itself. Um, Now, when you look at the dean as a zombie he's such a not a caricature but he's such a perfect example of what people envision a fresh zombie i'm going to zombie walk tomorrow and i'm going to see about 20 different and i'm going to see about 20 different versions of this exact same sort of zombie disheveled clothes walking slow thinking slow unable to focus the eyes a little bit of blood drooling out the mouth disheveled hair and stuff like that and dark under the eyes he's a really typical zombie and he is like a neat middle ground of what they're able to achieve with the serum from a raging almost someone from the crazies of 28 days later animalistic zombie with no human faculties whatsoever to what we end up with at the end game of the the perfect reanimated person almost ish i'm making air quotes no one can see Um, (laughs) he's the dean is somewhere in the center of all that Mm mm-hmm I really enjoy him as a zombie, actually. He's good uh, comic relief as well. It's great. Uh, the actor who played him discussed that when he sees his daughter, you'll notice he always turns away from her, won't look at her. It's this shame of what he's become in the deep recesses of his psyche. Mm-hmm. That's it. That, that, that was like something that I picked up. I was like, oh, that's interesting. And that, Aversion to these things that remind him of him being human and making him feel something. So yeah. he turns away. Yeah. It's pretty interesting. Now, after all this hubbub, they think that uh, Herbert West instantly concocts this story. It's believable, too. That makes them think that the Dean has just lost his mind. And they put him in a straitjacket and they put him in a padded room. And Dr. Hill says that he is going to do exploratory surgery to figure out what has happened. It is kind of great how quickly West comes up with the lie. Just because it is very believable because the alternative is he's back from the dead. And that is not something that anyone is going to believe. So if you say a man who was completely fine came into the morgue, and when he left the morgue, he was just crazy and completely unreachable mentally, then, well, I guess that makes sense. No, it doesn't. It doesn't make any sense. Yeah, now explain the other corpse on the floor. Explain the other corpse on the floor. Why are they covered in blood? What were they doing there in the first place? I mean, he comes up with flimsy excuses about all that stuff, but it doesn't make any sense because the dean was of sound mind. When he went into a room. Sort of. He was a little bit angry. Okay, but he was a little bit bit angry. (laughs) But I think that was the thing that sealed the deal, was that when his daughter was like, well, he was a little angry. He was a little angry. So we're brought down back to Herbert West's basement. And all of a sudden, there's Dr. Hill. And it seems that he's figured out that the Dean is dead and brought back to life. He's remembered all the crap that... Herbert West has said, and now he is coming to steal his research. And Herbert West has already 
accused him of stealing others' research. So this isn't a new thing. This is a something peculiar to that character, that he has no original ideas of his own, mm-hmm. as Wes has pointed out. So he's here to steal this idea. That's right, and because we can't have that. And Dr. Hill even says that he's going to be famous once he looks at the formula under the microscope. And just as he's doing that, it's a good distraction, West smashes him in the back of the head with a shovel and then decapitates him with the same shovel. A really nice shovel death, actually. It's a really good shovel death. Really great practical effects. All the effects in this movie are really good. And then comes the thing that I submit is the most well-known thing about this movie. For fuck's sake, it's on the posters it's on everything like nowadays when you see like redone art for reanimator on the internet and shit like that it's always the image of the severed head in the tin always yeah i've even seen people dressed up as herbert west with a severed head in a tin like it's really that iconic oh like they're holding they're holding the head in the oh cool but it's one of those practical effects that look fantastic and everyone loves it but you know exactly how it's done And I think that's a really telling thing that audiences are okay when they know how a special effect is done. They know they're in on it. And when that happens in horror, you'll usually find people get behind that scene even more if they know how the effect was done. Yeah, it's not dipping into the uncanny valley of snuff, right? Yeah. And this goes back to what you were saying about the critics, where the critics are able to like it. Exactly. Even though... If they were saw a movie where a, a guy's head was brutally removed, and they don't skimp on it. Like, this movie came out unrated. So don't think that there's a clever cutaway, cutaway yeah. where you don't really see what's happening. No, you see it in all its gory detail. The head come off, he picks up the head, and then puts it on one of those... Uh, like, what do you call it? Like, paper it's like holders? a note spike. It's a a note spike. spike. Thank you. That's it. Very practical, right? He's trying to make the head stay up, stay Just up. Flopping and then around. Flopping like around. A scene that anyone in a more serious movie, people would find it really disturbing or reprehensible. Absolutely no regard for human life. And we we know we know this about Herbert West. And yeah. now we were. this is proven because it's this ridiculous head won't stand up. And it's crazy because... You don't know if he if he's never killed anyone before, but there's no reason not to believe him. Uh, but he definitely does not seem... I mean, he's a doctor, so he looks at everything very... Clinically. M- clinically. Yeah, very. And so he's not grossed out by anything at all. And while Dr. Hill's body is severed, his head's in the tin, and then West reanimates just the head in the tin. And it's the least... The, like it's it's even less time from the point that the dean was brought back and so dr hill seems to have most of his faculties intact although now he's a far more sinister and passionate uh, the the id if you will the dark side of his personality seems to be far more pronounced even though he was never a good guy, this is a thief, this is a liar, this is somebody who... He's a manipulative uh, dick. Exactly, he's a manipulative dick and, and super arrogant. All of these things were present, but he was charming enough and he could interact with people. And I'm sure if you never got on his bad side, you would think he was a perfectly fine person. Mm-hmm. Not now. Not now, no. Holy shit, does... Yeah, everything, changed. every tiny vestige of humanity 
that was keeping him respectable has melted away. Exactly. Now he is this horrible thing. Horrible in personality and horrible for the fact that he is now a headless man just being carried around. And there's these scenes that border on slapstick while his headless body is sort of fumbling around. The, the, The headless body... Wes does not expect the headless body to come back to life he i guess he he's never tried just a head before he even says i like that he's never tried just individual parts and he goes for the head right he goes for the head he is completely distracted by it the the body is able to take out west knock him unconscious and then they escape they meaning the doctor and his head the doctor and his head so he escaped but since you could pretty much consider them two separate characters, even though he can control the body to some degree, it's really hard to tell if the body is listening to him. It has or no ears. It has no ears, but let's not get too bogged down in semantics. <laughs> but yes, there's some sort of telepathic link, I'm sure, between his body and his head. So he has someone to order around, which happens to be himself. Yes. And this body... Carries his tray around, gets him more blood to keep the brain hydrated. That's my absolute most favorite aspect of the head in the tray. Is that right away he orders the body to bring the blood bag over and fill the tray up with some fluid so that he does have, you know, something to feed his brain because you definitely need blood circulation Mm -hmm. to keep your brain. He gets another injection of the serum too. Yeah. To keep him keep him sharp. Keep him sharp. Right. I like that. I like that a lot about the head in the tray. Yeah, it's it's nice little details. Dr. Hill goes to the place where the dean has been locked up, which I guess is Dr. His Hill, office. His office. Yeah, because he has the coolest office ever. And he's I was got a padded say, room in his office. He's got a padded room next door, and he's got like a, a viewing window. So, I mean, some people would wish for something like a fireplace or a fish tank built into the wall. I kind of want a padded room with a lunatic in it built into my wall, because I think that's <laughs> fucking awesome. You ever get bored and you want to look at something? Fuck a lava lamp. You could just watch this lunatic this that you've lobotomized next door. And mm-hmm. when you get really bored, you can just order orderlies to go in and rough them up a little. <laughs> That's terrible. Best fish tank ever. Wow. Well, he, through some stretch of the imagination, is able to control the Dean. Or at least, at the very least, the Dean will listen to him. The zombie Dean. Yeah, Hill can talk to the zombie. Now, in the story, this uh, Dr. Hill is sort of paralleling the Canadian officer near mm-hmm. the end who ends up decapitated as well. And he is the most freshly dead uh, reanimated corpse at that. So he has most of his faculties with him. I don't want to give away every single tiny detail of the story because it's very well worth it to read and it's worth it to listen to um Jeffrey Combs read it to you I I love that you can do that so go do that but he is paralleling the Canadian officer at this point and what he does to pass as human when he does have to return to the hospital um, is directly from the story which I really really enjoyed the way that they did that with the anatomical dummy that he uses as a head Yes, and he has his own head in a bag (laughs) which is really, really fun. Very, very similar to the story itself. And in the story, he does, he is able to control the other zombies. And it is all culminating because of sort of a revenge plot. They're all angry that they've been resurrected. In this story, of course, Hill is 
not so much out for revenge. He just wants to take the serum and be famous or whatever diabolical scheme he has cooked up in his head in the bag. So he can control these other creations of Wests as well, from a distance even. Right. Well, like the a movie, king vampire. He is like the king. <laughs> you have to kill the head vampire. Mm-hmm. No pun intended. Oh, damn. I'm funnier than I thought. In the movie, he does have control not only of the Dean, but of other zombies as well. So it is very similar, at least in that aspect. In that he basically amasses a tiny zombie army to come and mm-hmm. destroy West? Yes. It's true. But he has something else on his, on his agenda. Throughout the movie, there are subtle hints that Dr. Hill might have a thing for the Dean's daughter. He covets this woman. Which I didn't really pick up on at all until you mentioned it, like, at the beginning. Mm-hmm. His little, like, sideways glances or whatever. The sideways glances, the, the way he spoke to her, overly talking familiar. Talking about her, her appearance. Talking about her appearance. There was a lot of subtle hints that even if he was a person who would never act on those things in life, now that he is dead, all of that is boiling to the surface. So he orders Zombie Dean Dad. Zombie Dean Dad. I like that. Zombie Dean Dad. Zombie Dean Dad. It's like a spinoff. <laughs> He's dead. He's my dad. But I love him anyways. He's the dean at my school. I don't know where that song would go. <laughs> I'm no songwriter. Neither am I. There's a, 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 mo- a quiet little moment between Dan and Megan, which, uh, which at this point seems a little out of place, but because he's just like, I'm so sorry for everything that's happened, which seems like... The and it's s- the tender moment. It's a tender moment, and I believe what he's saying, but somehow I don't think after... Being responsible for her father's death and resurrection, sorry's gonna cut it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, he's a charmer. He is a charmer. He's charming and he's very good looking, but it's not as though he forgot to pick up groceries. It's not as though he accidentally lost her favorite bobble or whatever. It's not even like. He got into an argument with her father at Thanksgiving dinner. It's that <laughs> their father is a zombie now. <laughs> I'm sorry. My bad. This might have worked for the cat. It might have worked for the cat. It yeah. might have. Sorry that your cat is a zombie cat now. All right. All right. It happens. We'll probably need to kill it again. We'll probably need to kill it again. You might want to turn away from that. Yeah, but no, and luckily it's short-lived. It is very short-lived because Dead Dean Dad shows up and whisks her away to the morgue where she is very famously stripped completely naked and sexually accosted by a headless man. Yeah, when you're talking about, like, iconic scenes, if, if you were just like, what's the most iconic scene from Reanimator? Unfortunately, my brain doesn't go to the head in the pan right away. My no. brain does go to the head between the legs or the head on the boobs. The, and the, 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 head, the head performing cunnilingus. Yes. Well, nearly. Well, and they turn away. It's cunnilingus interruptus. 
It is. The the scene is so fucking strange when you're thinking about it. First of all, it's a it's an a, a zombie with a severed head and the headless body is holding the head while it's edging so close to her crotch. And this woman is completely naked. And very very upset. Oh, that that like she is screaming and wants out. I'm glad that they decided to have one of her arms untethered because if she would have been entirely strapped down i believe that he could have had more of his way with her and it would have been more disturbing for the audience but because she does have one hand free and can push away it creates a really cool visual Mm -hmm. static going on there and she does have some interaction with this and something that she can at least fight back a little bit with thank Mm -hmm. god because i think that that creates a really cool dynamic in this scene Mm. his his her screams are met with his joy at her passion as he says creepy as fuck very creepy thankfully the scene is interrupted again by herbert west who in my favorite line of the movie admonishes him he's not even horrified at what he's seeing about this poor woman being strapped down naked and this guy performing or trying to perform all this sexual shit on her he's mortified that a man of science that has discovered the secret to life and death is wasting his time with some college girl. Some bimbo. <laughs> some bimbo. Yeah. And it really goes to show he doesn't like anybody. He doesn't like her. And he doesn't care about relationships or sex. That is not even on his radar whatsoever. He's he's asexual. And like just can't even comprehend why he would Dr. Hill would be acting Oh, he can fully way. comprehend it. But of course he just... It disgusts him, though. It disgusts him. And he puts it down to that really base level where he's just like, well, of course you'd be wasting your fucking time like this. Look at yeah. you. Look at you. Yeah. yeah. Not look at you, you're headless. Look at you, zombie. you're headless. <laughs> And and then uh, Dr. Hill, they have this great exchange where Dr. Hill says that, you know, he's going to have all the power and and rule everything and and who's going to believe a man without a head? Who's going to believe a talking head? Yeah, that's it. Yeah. That is an amazing line. Get a job and a sideshow. Yeah. (laughs) Who's going to believe a talking head? And then oddly you think to yourself, well, everybody, because don't we all? (laughs) <laughs> Let's all go watch the, They Live Again because that would that's a we're gonna believe a bunch of talking heads. Oh man, yeah. you guys got like political and shit. It's that's exactly it. Cut. That is exactly it. It's there's a couple lines that do these double duties like that in this film. So I really do enjoy the who's going to believe a talking headline, and it's delivered so dry. It's delivered as dry as when he admonishes him for spending and wasting time with this bimbo. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, again, Jeffrey Coombs is just is this role so much. It's it's absolutely incredible. I like I like that it's not even when you think about it. Herbert West isn't a really complex character. Not at all. Yeah, he's only got a couple emotions, if right. you can call them that. He only has a singular drive. Yeah. He has no real interaction. He treats everybody exactly the same, so he doesn't even have complex relationships with anyone that he does talk to in this film. So it's probably pretty easy to manipulate all of those things into this, like, one beautiful portrait of Herbert West. Maybe he had his work cut out for him. I don't know. I'd have to sit in on some panel where Mr. Coombs talks about playing him. It's true. I will say that, the, the like, what to what you were saying about him not being a complicated character, that's absolutely true. 
to to the fact that like there's been other mad scientist characters in all kinds of horror films, really famous ones, and of all of them, he really is the least complicated, but I argue one of the most compelling. Oh yeah. Because of that, because it's so simple and so easy to understand. He's obsessed about his work and there's nothing else but his work. And there's a really great moment coming up that crystallizes that concept for me and really becomes the most important line that the character says in the entire movie. But we'll get to it. <laughs> After these messages. After these the messages. <laughs> no, we'll get to it when all hell breaks loose. Oh, yeah. Dan shows up. West is there. Hill is there. The Dean is there. And... Well, West has a plan. Hill informs him. So do I in his raspy, I don't have lungs voice. (laughs) (laughs) Like you do. All of the cadavers in the morgue awaken together. Now, I don't know what they were. I mean, I know Dr. Hill can, can, I know Dr. Hill can control them mentally, but I kind of want to think that like, it's almost like a surprise party. It's like, okay, all you guys get into the body bags, zip them up, zip them up. Okay. Come on, zip them up. Lay down, be still, be still. Now, when he comes in and says he has a plan, (laughs) when I say, so do I, you all jump up to surprise him. Okay. Okay. You got it. You got it. it? You got it. Yeah, Larry, don't fuck this up. I'm looking at you. You know, stuff like that, right? Exactly. That is what it feels like. (laughs) It feels like because when he's like, so do I. And all the bodies come up and they're, they have a, they're fucking going apeshit. But he can control them with his mind because he's king of the zombies. Yeah, they can hardly control their own bodies, but he can order them around. Yeah. Yeah. Now Wes is at a disadvantage. He's getting pulled onto the table. He's going to, Use uh, Doctor Hill's going to use his new technique to lobotomize him. This mm-hmm. like laser, laser te- yeah, laser technique to lobotomize Which him. Which becomes apparent he's used on all these other zombies as well. And then, in a really great moment, like almost like uh, if I were to compare it to Star Wars, like the fucking Darth Vader going like attacking the Emperor and throwing him down the shaft. Megan calls out to her father and. The spell that, uh, the spell, the control that Dr. Hill has over him is broken, and he's able to get the other zombies off of her briefly and then goes to attack Dr. Hill's body. And while he's struggling with it, West comes up behind him and overdoses the body. And the Dean, in a fantastic fucking scene, grabs Dr. Hill's head and then crushes it it's and it's i'm not saying like he picks up the head and crushes it this scene goes on for a bit it's probably like four or five minutes of him <laughs> like slowly get, crushing, the, crushing head the head to the point the other zombies are starting to react at their own heads like be, they're be, being crushed be, yeah as because well. it's it's being controlled uh, they're all being controlled so you could almost assume that whatever control that he has over them is being severed and that in itself is uncomfortable yeah or maybe they can feel what he feels it's that not, could be it it's not clear but Something is going on with all of them, and they're all distracted. (laughs) Then the head is crushed, and then the Dean, again, because this is like a theme of of shit getting thrown at walls, (laughs) like 
the 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 mushed up head. This thing has been turned into like a bag of fucking chili. Like it's disgusting, basically. And just gets hucked against a wall. Now it's another ninety five mile an hour fastball into oh, the wall. Oh hell yeah! Blood splatters, and it's funny. Yeah. I, just before that, one of my favorite is when Doctor Hill has his own head still, and everyone's attacking, and he needs to look behind him, so he picks his head up, puts it where it used to be, and turns it around. <laughs> like, What's going on back there? Yeah, <laughs> eyes in the back of your head. No head behind my head. I don't know. I think I like that scene a lot. I it's it absolutely funny. great. All the cadavers I want to point out look absolutely fantastic. Each one has like their very specific look going on. How they probably died. You got one that looks like they got like a gunshot wound. Yeah, to the gunshot head. wound cadaver is my absolute favorite. I like the burnt one. The burnt one looks really good to me. Mm-hmm. Like half of his body is completely charged. Herbert West, like I said, has his idea was overdose. Overdose. <laughs> And he puts two, I love it, two syringes of the glowing formula into Dr. Hill's body. It appears that he snaps the needles off inside. Too. Yeah, yeah, sticks it in, breaks it off. And a crazy thing happens is Hill's body falls against a wall. His chest opens up like double doors and intestines or leap un- out. Leap out and wrap around Herbert West's face and then wrap around his body. And this is a line that, I, that I'm telling you that crystallizes everything for me. It's really important. The line is my notes. He takes his bag of notes and throws it. Not, not save me. Not I need help. My notes. And with his last ounce of strength, throws his bag of research towards Dan. Yet another very important Lovecraft technique, aside from the tentacle-like appearance of the intestines. Very Lovecraftian. Yes, um, mostly. But the notes and the obsession and the you-need-to-tell-my-story yes. kind of angle going on here is, yeah, of the utmost importance to the whole story. And it does, like you said, crystallize the personality of Herbert West entirely. Mm-hmm. As a man obsessed. A man obsessed. Because to the death, I will protect my research. That is what's important. If you're, sa- if you're wasting time saving me, you- what my notes could be destroyed. There's a fire now. There's all this shit going on. And then the smoke billows over around Herbert West and left rather ambiguous. Mm-hmm. Because now it's about Dan getting out. Dan and Megan getting free. They... Make it through the morgue. The bodies are just going like the, the 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 undead that are still there. Her father gets ripped apart while trying to save them, just ripped into six pieces basically. And so the zombies are now just intent on killing them and stopping them, like they had been ordered to do. Exactly. They get to the elevator. One of the cadavers gets their hands on Megan, and in I probably one of the neatest tension building scenes with the elevator door. Because we're all very familiar with the way elevator doors are set to behave. Yeah. And it's uh, helping, actually, with the zombie reaching in and the door keeps opening and closing. I really mm-hmm. enjoyed that scene a lot. It's a, it's a great scene. Megan, unfortunately, succumbs to the choking while Dan is ran to get an axe to... And this is where Dan comes into his own... He becomes himself. Oh, this, my this is God. Like, so now Dan is, is, you know, now Dan is in the tank top... He's got the sexy injuries. Dan, Dan, Very sexy injuries. 
He's a, he's a good looking and dude. And his injuries and blood stains have culminated through the show, too, because he gets oh, bruised yeah. sort of halfway through, and then he's getting more and more beat up as we go. So we're kind of getting like an Ash sort of Evil Dead look to him where his... Right. He, it's very Ash, very Evil Dead. Yeah. Bruce Abbott, by the way, is the actor that played uh, Dan Kane. I just want to shout that out because we've been... Talking about how good looking he is. Yeah, he's a good looking guy, and like, yeah. just in case you wanted to know. Yeah. And really, 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 really well acted. Really, really good counterpart to West. And at this point, he becomes that hero type looking fella with that, the, axe the, the and classic, the, blood the classic that. archetype. Yeah. And he's got the notes. He's got Megan. Unfortunately, though, that cadaver had his hands on her for a bit, and crushed her windpipe. Lar- her windpipe. Yeah. And so, in a scene mirrored from the first time you see Dan. The first time you see Dan, he is trying obsessively to save the life of a woman who has died on the table at the hospital that he was working at. And he's unable to save her, and he's trying to start her heart with, uh, you know, the pumps. Yeah, chest compressions. Chest compressions, thank you. I'm just yeah, doing, with the pumps, that sounds like yeah. <laughs> Giving, so he, like, basic CPR. Basic CPR, and, and the doctor's kind of looking at him saying, like, she's gone. And a good doctor knows when to let go. And in this scene now, it's the, the, the obsession to save a life, to stop someone from dying of a total stranger, was inherent in this character from that scene. Now he is dealing with the love of his life. This is his fiance. This is the person that he wants to spend the rest of his life with. And now because of all this insanity... Yeah, he's already cost her her father cost her probably her life entirely now mm-hmm. and that is like something that could completely destroy him luckily and unluckily he also can give up because he knows that there's another way there is another way and so you think that maybe he has learned his lesson from that first scene a good doctor knows when to let go and he just sort of stops the chest compressions on her and you know, the doctors know at the time, and then everyone sort of clears out. He kisses her, but he has the formula, and he's now going to use it on her. It goes to black. You hear a horrific scream and credits. Yeah, you're basically left with just that image of that glowing serum, and that's it. One of the more effective endings to a film that mm-hmm. I've ever seen. I really I love the end of that film and always have. It's very good. It's so ambiguous. And if they had left it alone, if this had been the only reanimator film that exists, it would be really powerful, but also super frustrating. Nah, not to me. I get I get frustrated because like ambiguous endings to me are like, yeah, all right, all right, I get it. And then you like leave things open to interpretation. But also I'd be like, well, what happened to West and... I know what happened to her. That I would, I'd be more like, what happened to him? Well, you got an killed? idea of what happened to her, sort of. Yeah. But I mean, does it matter? It doesn't matter. Whether West comes back, whether West is alive at all, whether West gets—it's also carried away by the zombies and ravaged and killed. Like, doesn't really matter. Maybe she pops up immediately and kills Dan, and then gets shot. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Like, it is very funny that Dan, I would suppose, be driven by his own passion, his passion for her, would neglect the fact that resurrecting 
her would probably end up this way, that she would be at best in a good condition as her father was, which isn't great. You know? Yeah, true. Yeah, true. And she'd probably have a crummy voice too, like Dr. Hill, because her throat's being crushed. Right. And I mean, I guess that's it. They don't even indicate. I mean, no cadaver is really alive long enough. Has the decomposition process stopped? Like, what is happening? You don't know. Like, are they going to get worse? I wish we could explore that because you had pointed out that really cool, like, lividity in the pooling of blood and bruising had been apparent in the first um, morgue reanimation. Yes. Um, They had done a really wonderful job with the clinical correctedness of that. So I would have liked to see where they would have taken how like how quickly will this be decomposing? What yeah. happens if they experience any sort of rigor? What happens if they start to like lose their their fluids start to rot out? Yeah, or they, they, they start to bloat, or they you have know, they like, sewn up their anuses at this point? I'd like to know. Yeah, there's a lot of questions that still need to be answered. There is a, a sequel to this, Bride of the Reanimator, obviously a riff on. Bride of Frankenstein. And then there's Beyond Reanimator. Both the movies are widely considered to be lesser than the original. I think that the original is so good that that's not really surprising. But if you are interested in the sequel, I will say that I liked the second one not as much, but I thought it was pretty good. And obviously Jeffrey Coombs and uh, Bruce Abbott do come back and reprise their roles. And questions from the first film are answered. And since Herbert West comes back, you know, at the very least, that he somehow miraculously survives that. Although, there is, it is a shame in that for him to die as a result of his research, like in the novella, would be a lot more poignant. True. And part of why I was never really compelled to watch the other one. This would be the third or fourth, probably third full viewing of this movie. And I... I'm only now interested to watch the second one because you say it takes place in some um, sort of war scenario, which is similar to the story, the original story, right? So that well, only makes for a me... bit of the movie, not for the entire movie. Yeah, but even so, even any any more parallels to the mm. original work uh, interest me now. Um, I suppose you're right. I suppose it is good to leave the. It's 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 not a terrible thing to leave the characters where they were at the end of this film. No, I don't think so. I don't think so. But I'm fine with ambiguous endings because not only do I write them all the time, I enjoy that actually. Mm-hmm. Being left to my own faculties to whether I want to imagine any further than the end that I've been presented or just leave it exactly there and be like, mm-hmm. well, I don't know what happened. And I'm fine with admitting that mm-hmm. where some people just absolutely can't. And some people would actually hate the end of this movie like you said, if it would be frustrating if there were no others. But sometimes it's equally frustrating to see where they do take it. Mm-hmm. I guess I just like the characters in this film so much that I want... I just like, I want more, I want more. And that happens to me sometimes. Sometimes when I'm watching a movie with an ambiguous ending... For example, The Driller Killer that we watched a few weeks ago, that has almost an identical ending in yeah. which you fade to black, you hear audio credits... You don't know exactly what happened. You can guess. Yeah. The the or uh, pet cemetery is even more similar. Mm-hmm. Where mm-hmm. where it's it's all about like you can't really resurrect people from the dead because they come back wrong. And the book doesn't have a sequel, so the book's even more effective. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
so so there's that aspect of it too, right? I don't know. I like it being ambiguous, you know? I, I like just having that glowing green serum at the very end. You know what it does. Oh, hell yeah. Yeah. It's their tender moment. It's the only, it's the third one they get in the whole fucking movie. Leave them alone. <laughs> it's their quiet, private time. Don't they get some peace in this fucking movie? Yeah, not till the very end. When not... she's going to come back as like Tammy from Fido. <laughs> not everyone might not know what Fido is. I don't care. Oh, okay. <laughs> I know who Tammy is, and I think that that's These funny. are my references. They're not for you. <laughs> what, do I need to go and explain what Fido is now and who Tammy is? No, you don't have to do that, but what you can explain is what movie we have next for everybody. What movie we have up next? Night yeah. of the Demons. Night of the Demons, one of my all-time favorite films to watch during the month of October it is Halloween as fuck. Let me ask you this. Do you feel pressure as a horror fan to do more in October? I was thinking about this all week because we got a lot of fun stuff planned for October for you guys because we love you. And I started thinking to myself, what are my actual... I know what I'm doing for the podcast for the month of October, but what are my plans for Halloween? And my answer is... I don't have any plans right now for Halloween. Do you do you feel a lot of pressure? Not necessarily, no. I always take uh, at least a day or two off around Halloween, and I'm doing that again this year, so I have a nice long weekend planned. I normally don't know how I feel in regards to going out, right? And that's a normal thing. So that's as much as Halloween is every day, every day I don't know what I want to do. So I could make loose plans, but whether I'm going to stick to them or not, it depends on how I feel when I wake up that morning. I'm definitely going to see Patron Saint of Plague's play, and that's a nice repeat of last year. Mm-hmm. I do like to usually go out for live music around that time, and that's really about it. I don't actually make any plans, and for the entire month of October, I do get, as I normally do when there's too many things to do in the city, I get a little chagrined when there are too many things to do, because I don't want to go out that often, right? So... All that October does really is exacerbate that. The same way that people feel about Christmas in a way where, you know, people who like Christmas like it, but it's too much to do, right? Mm -hmm. I sort of feel like that a little bit, but I don't really feel the pressure because I normally remain a little immune to that by just not doing stuff. I feel immense amounts of pressure and it doesn't help because everyone around me knows that I love horror so much and I love October and I love Are they adding to this? They're piling it on? They're piling it on. And I almost feel like the same pressure I feel to be funny on Facebook. Like, this status better be funny. And I'm like, fuck, I'm not feeling too funny right now. And then I'm like, what do I do? And then I get my fingers poised over the fucking keyboard before I realize, oh, wait, I don't have to write a status update. And then I go on with my life. I wish more people would realize that. But, but, But Halloween is coming, whether I want it to or not, and I do, but I'm just like, I almost feels like, so what, what do you got going on, Wes? You got like a big party or like, or like, you know what it reminds me and of? And you don't want, you're almost ashamed to be like, I don't know, nothing really. I, I don't know, nothing really. <laughs> like, I guess I'm taking it off. And so I'm just kind of relying on the podcast to be my Halloween. Like, here you go, guys. Oh, yeah. I, I kind of like that. That warms my heart. Please, yes, let the podcast be your Halloween every <laughs> single day, Wes. Um, I'm glad that you think that. I was just, yeah, it was just something that I was thinking about. I was wrestling with it. Yeah, don't don't wrestle with it. Don't wrestle with it. No pressure, Wes. 
Do all the things all October. <laughs> what does that mean? That you're gonna you're gonna have to like feed into all the pressure, the things that people are piling on you. The fourteen parties are gonna happen the week around Halloween. Go. You should come to the Patron Saint of Plague show with me. That's what you should do. Okay. You can dress up if you want. See, I think that's the only pressure that I pile on myself every year is that I want to dress up as Carolyn Jones, Morticia Adams, and I want to do a fucking awesome job. But every year, I don't. I think that's the only pressure that I really ever feel. That's really. like the fucking story of my life. I've, I just want to do this thing, and then I don't. The end. <laughs> Pretty much. I know I know. one thing I will not do this Halloween is dress up as Lydia Dietz because that is my number one cop-out because I can just dress up as Lydia Dietz every day and it's not that noticeable, but people do notice it on Halloween because they're looking for it. And that's like, I just put on my regular clothes and put my hair in a high pony and tease it and poof, I'm Lydia Dietz. Do you remember the Beetlejuice cartoon? Yeah. The only episode that I really remember of that show, and I love that show, was the episode that it was Halloween and Lydia had to put on, had to, she felt pressured to put on a Halloween party. And everyone at school was like, it's Lydia's party. It's going to be the scariest, best, most amazing Halloween party ever. And Lydia gets super nervous about throwing this party because she thinks that she can't live up to it. And so she gets Beetlejuice to help her, and what does he do? He just brings a bunch of people from the netherworld and gets this thing called party people in a can and brings it to the party, and you just add water, and then the party people in the can become crazy party animals. And he actually brings a guy called Party Animal to the party. (laughs) But, you know, too much water, the party people get really big, and then they got to drive around town in a vacuum cleaner to dry them out. And that... And that's kind of how I feel. I'm basically Lydia Deeds trying to throw on the biggest party ever. Every year. Every Every year. You do this to yourself every year. I need party people in a can. No, you do not need party people in a can. What you need is a quiet night in and a fucking book. I don't read. Dude, that's your number one problem. Maybe you wouldn't be succumbing to all this pressure if you could just curl up in a ball in the dark and read a book. Calm the fuck down. It's just October. (laughs) You gotta own it. You got. You can't let Halloween own you. You can't let it tear you apart. Jesus wept. (laughs) (laughs) And on that note, I'm Wes Knight, and I'm Typical Lydia, and you've been listening to Dead Air.